0: Welcome, thinkers, to Season 3, Episode 17 of Thinking Critically. Today's episode is Motion. And... Today, I'm joined by the cast of The Fourth Leg Podcast. Thank you ever so much for joining us today, guys. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves? I'm Joe. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Hunter.
1: We are the hosts and I am the editor of The Fourth Leg. We're a tabletop gaming show all about giving new GMs a leg to stand on. And the entire purpose of our show is to provide a comprehensive A to B segmented show about how to... Get started as a GM, starting in simple topics like session zeros and coming up with campaign concepts, and then finally, eventually, getting into more abstract stuff like what is real. (laughs) So give us a listen.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much. I'm I'm very much looking forward to this episode, and you guys are going to be exceptionally qualified for today's weird-ish topic based on what you've just described. (laughs) Uh, Today's topic on that note, is motion. So I'm going to open the floor and say, what is that notion, <clears throat> if you'll pardon the... <laughs> the notion of the motion in the, <laughs> the last ocean. minute pun. Yeah, that jumped into my head. And for a minute there, I was like, mm. should I say that? Is that funny or is that lame? And, you know, I took a gambit.
2: Uh... <laughs> Steer into the skin. Yeah.
0: So what, what does that mean to you in the D&D framework?
3: If somebody else wants to go first, because my brain immediately went to art because... Um... My day job is being a comic (laughs) artist, so motion is a very different implication for me in that respect.
4: Yeah,
2: so uh, I think there are several different ways you can look at motion uh, in a TTRPG uh, mindset. There's, you know, moving around the board in any kind of game that embraces any style of tactics, Mm -hmm. but there's also, uh, you know, moving the story or the plot forward. Uh, which can make for some some interesting or uh difficult moments depending on the group that you have with you
0: yeah mhm mhm yeah one one thing that I thought was very, very interesting in my research for today's topic, and we will loop back around to you, Kelsey, because I am not very much not an artist, so I'm very interested to see what you have to say on that topic Life. there, but um <laughs> <laughs> um so so the webster's dictionary defines motion uh as the, the process of moving or being moved which i think w- when, when i mm-hmm. a- apply that to a ttrpg setting it immediately r- rings not alarm bells in my head but it is really triggering my my synapses from a dm's perspective in terms of like how to essentially put things in motion when you are inherently not in control of that motion as a as a dm so with that in right. mind what are you guys what are your guys's take on that
3: oh that is a good question
0: hey if you don't mind
1: me hopping in here first i really enjoy as a gm taking my players and forcing situations in their uh, immediate vicinity right so We'll just take a true to life stance on this real quick. Mm-hmm. And we'll say uh, if you're driving a car and you pull up and you legally stop at a light or a sign or you're going the speed limit and somebody else hits your car, you did everything right and something still happened to you. Something still exerted itself yeah. onto you, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as a GM, I think that it is well within our rights to tastefully. Uh, impose certain things onto or around our players in order to push them towards a certain direction or push them towards the direction of the plot in this case. So if your players walk into a new town and there's a person being harassed on the sidewalk, there are a couple of different things that you can do about that. Either they are compelled to go help that person because this is happening in their vicinity, or if they don't help that person, then they could get a negative reputation among certain people in the town. or And there's a lot of different directions you can go with that, but no matter what, you're just one marble kind of starting this whole thread of possible scenarios just by putting that one thing in their range yeah. of vision. Mm-hmm. So I think as a, as a GM, when you're causing the party to move, it needs to be a little bit more on that subtle end because you can't be a bull in a china shop about it. Otherwise, it's not really... A game anymore it's just you're, you're forcing them to be characters in your story but you can definitely just kind of very gently push them in a certain direction and a lot of times players have this um, especially in D&D where the whole point is to be like this fantasy epic mm-hmm. hero mm-hmm. the players have this kind of preconceived notion of heroism about them so they're more likely to go and do the heroic thing which kind of helps you adjust what you're going to throw their way
3: oh yeah absolutely that when you said uh doing something extreme like a bull in a ti- china shop my first reaction was um there was one gm who recommended hey do you need to get your plot moving steal something from the party and i'm like well that's a way to do it <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure that that's how i would do it but it is certainly a way if you are stuck on how to get the party moving or going in a particular direction. Just have an NPC steal something from the party, and then the party has to try and find it. That's not necessarily something that I like making my players do. A lot of the motion in the campaign that I'm currently running is pretty dependent on the players, but the players are pretty active agents. Like... Maybe they're not, like, super-duper heroic. Okay, maybe one of them is super-duper heroic. It's the tiefling bard is the one that's like, I'm going to be friendly, and I'm going to help everybody, and I'm going to be friends with everyone. And I'm like, (laughs) okay, so you are going to be the active agent, so I'm going to throw all kinds of stuff that might upset you. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. But that's also just, like, the challenge as a DM is, like, knowing the personalities of your players and being like, okay, so this player is playing a character that's kind of quiet, but also quietly driven in their quest to search for something. So let's pepper in a few things, like, maybe they'll notice in a subtle way, and then as soon as they notice it, have them react to it. And there's there's been times in other campaigns where... I've had other quiet players uh, who will just sit there and they'll let the loud characters do their loud thing. And then I'll pepper in a little like sprinkle of their backstory somewhere. And then that quiet player suddenly becomes very loud and Mm -hmm. they're just like, I'll be right back. And then they leave. And I'm like, "Ooh, this is interesting. (laughs) So that's some motion right there. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. And if you don't mind me tagging back in before you come on, Joe. Sure. I want to give it a little bit from the player's perspective too because, you know, we we talk on our show all the time about GM's perspective and, you know, how to for lack of a better term, manage your players into getting a result that is within the realm of what you want, right? Oh yeah. So, as a player, one of the ways that you can engage the rest of your party into motion is to kind of engage with your own backstory. I guess is the best way to say it. So you know things about yourself as a player that nobody else at the table is going to know. So I played in a Star Wars game last night. And one of the ways that I engaged with my own backstory, with my own character, was uh, I'm a computer guy. I'm a tech nerd. You know, I'm a mechanic. And my comms got hacked, right? (gasps) Which was not a good thing, but I was able to isolate it to just me. So I was like, okay, this is damage control. And when I got back to the party, I figured out that one of them had stolen a droid from the enemy. And I'm like, there are so many things that they could have put in that droid that you did not know to check for. And it caused some pretty mild conflict, but it drove the story forward because it engaged everybody in that dialogue of what if there is something wrong here? Uh, what if like there's there's a plant what if there's somebody who's turned their backs on us what if there's somebody who's betrayed us and just because I was like oh I was able to isolate it to mine but I brought it to the party that there was an issue uh, with my communicator with this droid and it was just a snowball effect of asking a question from the perspective of my own story and then engaging everybody else in that question
4: yes yes
2: Hmm. I'm a, I'm gonna put the hat on and play devil's advocate for a second. I would even argue that personal development is still motion. You may not be moving like the overarching plot forward, but like there are plenty of shows where, you know, we get a ten to fifteen minute B plot or C plot where, you know, mm-hmm. a character grows and and learns a lesson or Becomes something more. I mean, a lot of Zuko's stuff in Avatar, which we've referenced several times, is like B and C plot at times, mm-hmm. but he ends up becoming, uh, you know, a credible part of the main group after that important character development.
4: Yeah. Mm,
0: thank you for mentioning Avatar because it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and Zuko, especially, is fantastic. So, no, mm-hmm. I, it's very interesting when you put, you know, use that comparison. I've never. Thought about it in that way before, but it is true with that, as you said, like the B and the C stories. But then eventually, like these are fan favorite for every mm-hmm. reason, right? <laughs>
3: yeah. And also throwing that, uh, throwing this out here, um, my roommate and I have actually been watching the original Cowboy Bebop on Netflix, mm-hmm. not the live action remake, the original one. And that show is nothing but B plots and C plots, and. Just yeah characters yeah. doing their thing so if you want like a pretty good example of that sort of thing just it's only 26 episodes long it's not that long
1: and actually cowboy bebop is a great thing to bring up here because when we're talking about motion especially in a long-term campaign mm-hmm. uh, like dan brought up before we started recording that he's in a long-term D D campaign i am as well that's been going on for about a year and a half now and
3: well congratulations (laughs)
1: oh thank you very much um one of the ways that i've kept that interesting is by engaging those b and c plots and making those the main threads of the story until the actual story has time to mature right so Mm -hmm. in cowboy bebop the main story is pretty much exclusively told through flashback until the last three or four episodes Mm -hmm. And it's such an interesting storytelling mechanic because you get to focus so much on the characters and their development and how they grow towards the inevitable climax without ever really touching on the main flow of the story as it stands. And it has that time to mature and you ask all of these questions in the back of your mind until finally they're all answered in, in like a rush. And it's so interesting. It's one of the reasons Cowboy Bebop is one of, if not the greatest anime ever made, uh, at least in its genre. Yes. So don't be afraid as a storyteller or even as a player to engage with those B and C plots. Your main story does not need to be your main story for the entire run of your campaign. You can engage with that when it's convenient or when Mm -hmm. it makes sense without losing momentum. Mm
3: -hmm. Yep. And sometimes you won't even know what your a plot is until you get all of your player characters together, and then you have yeah. your first session or your session zero, and you actually bounce around ideas, and then an a plot solidifies. I've had mm-hmm. that happen before too.
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's. I, I I like this train of thought because there is often it's a double edged sword. Now I'm saying it out loud because I wanted to talk about earlier on how as I opened this questioning with you know as, as a gm one of your roles in a way is to is to make sure or to ensure there's some kind of forward momentum mm-hmm. but i also and, and the reason why that's a bit of a taboo subject is because it's like ooh, lack of agency and railroading and you go right. down that kind of mm-hmm. road of discussion but then on the same on the other side of the coin it's you have the players as well who are just as that's the ironic thing right is it, it, in a way that their agency is in their own hands. Oh, yeah, <laughs> to to, mm-hmm. to pull yeah. on those those B and C plots. Oh yeah, to pull on the, the you know those backstory threads to bring them to the forefront, and that's you know any you know a DM should be willing to accommodate that and making that the the prime focus of that session or however many sessions it might be.
3: Absolutely, and there's a very big difference between say writing a story for a tabletop RPG that engages players versus writing a story that you adapt into a novel or a comic or something. Cause that was an adjustment.
2: <laughs> Even a video game, like you, uh, mm-hmm. you have a lot of stuff where, and, th- and that's something you run into with, with GMs who have players complaining about lack of agency. It's like, Oh, well, you know, we're going to go over there. We don't really want to engage with that. Oh, well, you can't go over there because mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z. Like I think with hunters, like events, like you you toss the event out. The event is the only scripted thing, and then whatever the players do or how they respond to it is totally up to them.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: the event is going to happen no matter what, but the players are in full and complete control over how they engage in the moment and how they react afterward. They don't necessarily have to follow up on that event in in any way, but typically speaking, again leaning on that heroic preconception of themselves that these characters have typically they're going to engage with one of these area altering events in a, in a heroic way
4: mm-hmm.
1: so there, there are certain things that you can predict but there are definitely things that are going to catch you out of left field because if there's like an invasion from uh, I don't know uh, let's just use a D&D classic and say a, an orcish tribe invades a small town mm-hmm. that you're in typically speaking a DD and d party is going to stand up against this, uh, these tribesmen and try to save people, right? Or try to drive them out completely.
3: Typically, yes.
1: yes. <laughs> yeah. E- every now and again, you're going to get that party that's like, I don't know, man. I've always thought orcs were pretty cool. And then be like, hey, let's help these boys out.
3: And then you'll have parties like mine where I played a half-orc druid who just came up to the orcs and was like, Hey, my dudes, how you doing? What's going on? Why are you down here causing a fuss, man? (laughs) Because that actually happened once in a session.
2: But that's, I mean, that's part of agency. Like, that's that's an opportunity Mm -hmm. to move the story forward. It may not be in a, let's knock out all the orcs and, you know... Mm -hmm. kick him out of town, but it is driving the story forward.
3: It is. Yeah, absolutely. The story can drive forward regardless of how it turns out. Like I mentioned this in a previous episode of the fourth leg, which you can totally listen to by the way, hint, hint, Mm -hmm. wink, wink, but (laughs) um, that, yeah, shameless plug out of the way. But in an episode, I had mentioned that there was a segment where my player characters had gone into a world and a tiger came out of the woods and attacked them out of self-defense. And I fully expected like a combat encounter. And then the bard rolled really, really high on her persuasion check and was like, no, 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 we don't want to fight. We don't want to fight you. We want to be friends. And I being the DM, I was like, okay, so I let's get into the tiger's head for a second. What would the tiger do next? And then I was like, and then the tiger starts crying. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and <Aww. laughs> the, the situation changed from like a combat encounter to they befriended the tiger and the tiger led the party to his secret hideout and that can be emotion in its own way because it's like hey instead of having the players like do investigation checks to try to find this hideout maybe they just befriend the tiger and persuade mm. the tiger to lead him where it is that he goes
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you mentioned in during that discussion there mm-hmm. two kinds of of parties uh regarding the the invasion of this town uh yeah. the ones that are you know quote unquote typically mm. heroic and you know rally to the defense of the town and you know welcome to cheers and praise from the townsfolk and then you have the ones that are like no 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 let's let's see what it is on the other side let's see if we can end this in a compromise or whatever it may be now, or you might have a party party c in this hypothetical situation, which happens to be very similar to mine in some cases, <laughs> where they abstain and go, well, not my problem. I don't. It's not my town. It's not my friends. And basically, have zero motion in that given instance. Mm-hmm. So, this is a this is an open question then for you, half for the show and half for my own benefit, uh, <laughs> on on what you know. How, how do you deal with that? Those situations when the party or particularly charismatic player characters or indeed players have persuaded the motion of the party to essentially stop for whatever reason maybe, maybe nine times out of ten it'll be benign you know they're, they're unaware that this is going to hamper storytelling but mm-hmm. how, how do you how do you work with that situation
2: I think, uh, and and again, I think, I know that it's not, uh, it's not motion in the the direction of the the conflict that you've set up. But, uh, again, that's still, that's still valid motion away from something like there are times where the party is going to see a conflict and be like, Oh no, we're way outclassed, or we don't want to deal with X, Y, Z, because it's going to cause us a bunch of problems like, and they run away. Like Mm -hmm. it sucks, but it's part of the story. I mean, uh, take, uh, Last Jedi, I think, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to to get this guy off this planet, this gambler off this planet. And Finn's like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm going to come back. Like, I'm I'm good. Like, he's uh, he's that coward, that coward player who's like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. And that's that's still an opportunity for that growth. Um, mm-hmm. Now, there may be some consequences within the game world because they didn't interfere. Uh, but I mean, at the end of the day, again, still character growth, still motion.
3: Yeah. So, there was actually a situation in another campaign that I had run. It didn't last super duper long because at one point we got a guest player in who proved to be a problem and it and the group just kind of fell apart after that. But before that problem character came in, the party that I had, I started up the campaign and I was actually revisiting a campaign that I had run two years prior because I wanted to polish up the world a little bit and possibly make it into a module. And I was like, Oh cool. A new set of player characters. Let's go ahead and have them interact with this world and see what happens next. And there were very obvious like plot arrows pointing in specific directions. And the players were not jumping on any of the hooks. And so I was like, okay, time to initiate plan B, which was Tapping into one of the player characters background story hooks and being like, ah, okay, so this player character has a kind of revenge boner going on and they spot somebody who is part of the cavalcade of people who took down his people. So I'm going to have this uh, bad guy antagonist from this guy's background just going by just out the edge of his vision. And then as soon as that guy saw that, the plot started happening.
1: hmm I-, I like to imagine RPG plots as just this big grassy hill, right? And this is probably just a deeply locked memory for me <laughs> from my childhood, so bear with me for a minute.
4: Okay. But
1: <laughs> when you roll a rock down a hill, mm-hmm. it's inevitably going to stop somewhere, right? That's not always going to be in a straight line. It's not always going to be where you expect. Sometimes there are pebbles along the path. Sometimes there are tiny bumps. Sometimes there are just heavier clumps of grass that are going to divert that rock that you're rolling down the hill to somewhere that you didn't expect. But no matter what, the rock is going to keep going downhill. It's just the nature of a rock, right? Yeah. So I say all that to say that That was a sentence that made sense. (laughs) 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 Um, I say all that because your party is is the rock. Sometimes they're going to hit a pebble, sometimes they're going to hit a snag, but they're always going to keep moving forward as long as there's still more hill, right? Mm -hmm. So let's take the orcs attacking that village, for example. The party chooses to abstain from engaging with the orcs. They don't try diplomacy, they don't join them, and they don't fight against them, mm-hmm. right? Which are the three main options, right? Good, yeah. neutral, evil. Yeah,
0: the three m- immediate video game options, yeah.
1: Exactly. They choose to abstain, and they just stay in their, their rooms in the inn. Well, there are a couple of things that you can do there. Maybe the orcs aren't looking to capture the town, they're looking to burn it to the ground now, right? So you change your plan up really quick, and now there's a fire in the inn. You have to do something, or you will burn with it, right?
4: Mm -hmm.
1: Or they don't burn the inn down, they capture the town, and now you can't leave unless you fight, sneak away, or dialogue with these orcs. And it's a full town of this orc tribe, so it's going to be really tough to sneak away. What do you do? How are you engaging? You cannot exist the way that you have been. There are consequences to neutrality in the real world, and there are consequences to neutrality in an RPG game. Mm. The rock rolls down the hill. Mm -hmm. So, if I can uh, sum it up at all, it's, as a GM, don't feel bad for doling out consequences to the player's actions. Absolutely not. Don't make them excessive, either. Don't make it like, oh, you choose not to do anything? Okay, well, roll up new characters because there's no way you're going to survive if you don't act or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Just change the scenario to encourage them to act because they don't have to run away from a burning in, but it definitely is more positive if they do.
0: (laughs) Yep. It's a very good uh, carrot on the end of the stick there is not being in a burning in. It's a classic (laughs) motivational uh, (laughs) tactic there. I do my best. <laughs> now, uh, thank you for bringing in that rock metaphor, because as part of my other research I was doing, that works really well because of Newton's first law of motion to sound intelligent in their... <laughs> TTRWG well podcast. this is a
3: podcast called thinking critically
0: indeed yeah it's about time i started to live up to that name right that was
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: i spent all that create that that big the galaxy brain thinking right at the beginning of the show when i came up with a name and then that was it <laughs> i was <laughs> <laughs> i was spent um but no the first law states that an object in motion tends to stay in motion unless an external force acts upon it but that works very well with that metaphor of that rock falling down the hill. Mm-hmm. Like, as you said, like mm-hmm. it's just going to keep rolling because you're already sat at the table playing the game. So I guess what I'm getting at is sometimes there's a lot of pressure on GMs and mainly self-imposed to be like this bastion of creativity and this fountain of agency and all these other stupid terms that i'm making up when in reality mm-hmm. like everything's there working already f- for you in a way like that there are there are a lot of things that are already happening and sometimes it's easy to get you know lost in the woods you know you can't see the wood for the trees kind of thing when mm-hmm. yeah it can be quite simple a solution as you've just said hunter in terms of like okay well now they're burning it to the ground <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, i i think this is a really good time
1: to bring in a a staple Of GM conversations, which is collaborative storytelling. It's something that you're going to hear a lot if you start discussing any TTRPG, but it's the idea that your players contribute to the story as well. So let's take a... I hate to bring up this show, but uh, let's take Critical Role, for example. Mm -hmm. Right? Ah!
2: i know i know <laughs> clutch your pearls but the,
3: the pearls have been clutched sir I,
2: I have never heard of this critical role hunter what do you mean
4: can you, can you uh, spell it it's just it? some some little <laughs> show
1: then uh, <laughs> i don't know maybe they sell them on amazon or something you can buy a critical role somewhere but, <laughs> um <laughs> but uh we as gms a lot of people got their start in this hobby via watching Matt Mercer work, right? Yeah. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm one of them, you know? I started watching Critical Role very, very early on in Campaign 1, and it inspired me to play in my first D&D game, and the rock rolled down the hill, and here I am making a podcast about it, right?
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, same boat. Mm
1: -hmm. Critical Role is not solely successful because Matt Mercer is a good GM. Mm -hmm. Matt Mercer could, in theory be the best GM in the world. But that is not what makes Critical Role successful. Mm -hmm. What makes Critical Role great is the interplay between GM and players, right? Matt Mercer could probably make a successful podcast with a group of normies, right? (laughs) (laughs) But the fact that he's got such interactive and dynamic players takes Critical Role to the heights that it is today because Matt Mercer would not be nearly as successful as the GM if he didn't have a group of players that both fit his style and played well off of one another. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Critical Role is a great example of collaborative storytelling because every single player contributes to the world just as much as the GM does.
3: Yeah. And that's actually something that a YouTuber who goes by the name The Dungeon Coach talks about. Mm -hmm. I actually highly recommend The Dungeon Coach if you like me, really like doing homebrew for Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition because that's almost exclusively what he talks about. He touches into other systems as well. But a lot of what he talks about is, hey, I really don't like this particular rule for D&D 5e as it's written. How about we do a homebrew to patch it? And he actually talks about the critical role player effect Uh, Because people have talked to death about the Matt Mercer effect, but Mm -hmm, there is mm -hmm. a critical role player effect happening as well. And it's a lot of what you've talked about. And he talks about it more in depth in his video. I highly recommend that you just watch that.
1: So it it can be small things. Um, So like as a player, to go back to the player perspective, uh, I was playing in my Star Wars game. We were doing a heist in a bar. Mm -hmm. I just made up three different drinks alcoholic drinks, so don't don't drink any of these fake Star Wars drinks if you're under 21 in America. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, you know, I just made up three drinks that added just a little bit of flair and flavor to the world around us, right? You can do little things like that. Be like, oh, uh, we walk into this new town. Hey, GM, can there be a, I don't know, a tavern named the Lovely Goose, and it's all fashioned in goose down everything and it's really expensive (laughs) but the food tastes like garbage right (laughs) just this quirky little thing where it looks really nice but it's functionally defunct right yeah Mm -hmm. and as a GM invite your players to do that if you're like I don't really know how else to describe this city hey players what do you think this city looks like Mm
3: -hmm. yeah Uh, tell me one thing that you see tell me one thing that you smell tell me one thing that like brushes up against your leg
1: (laughs) Exactly, and to bring this back to the overarching topic so we don't tangent too much, that's going to encourage the players to interact with the things that they've created in the town, right? Mm. So that's going to keep them moving forward. It gives you an easy place to put plot hooks or easy plot hooks to pull on uh, because players are more likely to engage with things that they've created. That's why backstory arcs are so effective.
4: Mm -hmm. Mm.
0: I'm going to have to leverage that, if only for the reason of taking some of that creative weight off, my, off of my shoulders. I'm a lazy bastard,
2: so I encourage you to do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: I know. Well, he, he, he won't strongly encourage you. He'll just kind of sit there be like, yeah, you do that, man. But- <laughs> Way to go.
3: Yeah, no, honestly, this is a big chunk of why I highly encourage my players to like give me as detailed a backstory as they want because they give me elements that i can put into the world like oh my parents came from this town and this town is best known for this thing and i'm like great this is one less thing for me to build Mm. from scratch Mm. so like absolutely engage with the player's backstory to flesh out the world
0: Okay, so, I mean, we've talked an awful lot now about in-game motion, so keeping things moving, I think, is the nice, simple definition that we've Mm. used for the first half an hour of this show. Uh, Before we move on, though, I had one more thought around um, when that is inhibited for whatever reason. So we've talked about uh, the the abstinent party. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. We've talked about who's, you know, who's responsible for keeping things in motion. The one final thing that I had on this kind of broad topic around kind of in-universe motion was analysis paralysis, that classic mm. term yeah. that we've all had as human beings in our lives at, at one point or another, something we can all relate to. And I think when you get... However many players around a table operating through a filter of their characters, but well, you know inherently operating on less knowledge than perhaps they should have at that time, it is very, very, very easy to fall into that trap, doubly so, when you have players who are either hyper aware of the other players and like don't want to step on any toes and don't want to be seen as like commandeering the situation. So it's, it's just very easy to fall into that trap of like, I'm the GM and look at this smorgasbord I've laid out, this wonderful, fantabulous world of all these mm-hmm. wonderful and wacky things you can do. <laughs> have fun. And the players go, oh, don't know what to do. I don't want to do that because that's there, but I can't go there because this other character doesn't want to go there. And it's mm-hmm. it, it can very easily devolve into three hours of <laughs> of like zero motion other than, so, we should go right and
4: <laughs> yeah yeah uh
0: so yeah what 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 a you know, how do you mitigate that how do how do we stop that I, the best solution is to stop i guess that point happening when it when it happens in a negative way, of course, there are probably instances mm-hmm. when it it can be seen as in a positive way, but let's have a a good faith argument here and assume that the analysis of paralysis is a, a negative instance in this case. Mm-hmm. How can we stop it from happening? It's probably the best question to ask. Um, Ooh, I have as, a lot of thoughts on this. Okay, as somebody okay, who, good. as somebody
3: <laughs> as somebody who is neurodivergent, who also writes stories a lot and who is overwhelmed by analysis, paralysis a lot of the time, one of the easy ways to mitigate that is, um, And I'm just going to tangent a little bit and just talk about writer's block for a second, because Mm. that's what writer's block is, It's just analysis paralysis. You have written Mm. yourself to a point where suddenly there's a lot of options in front of you and you don't know which one is the best one. And honestly, the best answer is that there is no best choice in a scenario like that. You either pick an option and you follow that road to where it inevitably ends And at least when it comes to writing, if you don't like where it ends, you can just go back to that point where you had experienced the writer's block in the first place and try again with a different option. Because I've done that multiple times Mm. Uh, when it comes to GMing or running a game and the players are like, oh, God, analysis paralysis. What do I do next? Um, It can be your role as the DM to just narrow it down to like three options and this is Mm -hmm. this is something that's been brought up as a sales tactic too because i've done sales for years Mm -hmm. um because it can be really easy to overwhelm the shopper with options so you just narrow it down to three to start Mm -hmm. and you go from there and whenever you're gming for a particular setting it may be helpful to just have like three kind of root choices to choose from and then each root choice can have sub choices after that almost like uh almost like a spoken wheel kind of a system Mm -hmm. where like you go down one spoke and it leads into another spoke and it leads to another one and another one etc but that's my thoughts on it if anybody else wants to chip in
2: no i i definitely agree i think Uh, generally when i am writing something uh to to put in front of my players i have one to two like likely options i mean as a gm you generally know your players uh to an extent Mm -hmm. and they're inevitably going to surprise you at some points but after you played with a with a group for a certain amount of time you're like okay well they're likely to engage with this or that uh, and you can kind of narrow things down a little bit but I mean, there, there's also a time and a place for, you know, like, hey, you're in the middle of a crisis, like, quit knee-jerk response. What is so-and-so do? You know? Mm.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
0: The, the the classic tactic there is imposing a time limit, which is, mm-hmm. as with most mm-hmm. GM tool belt tricks, it's obviously in, in moderation. Don't do it for every single... The, the barmaid comes over and asks, what are you buying? You've got three seconds to decide. Is it is it beer or is it red <laughs> wine? That's a, that's a little
2: excessive, but... <laughs>
3: No, red honest-
0: wine or blue wine <laughs>
3: <laughs> honestly there could just be some moments where it can be in character for somebody to just sit there and putz around for 10 minutes being like oh do i want to do this one oh, no, yeah. wait a minute do we, we want to do like a a party plate a party plate maybe let's do a party play how about we do a party plate <laughs> like that could be in character and that can be motion in and of itself
4: mm-hmm. yeah
0: that, absolutely and that that comes to kind of player experience to a certain extent to know where the line is in terms of well now now I'm just being obnoxious uh, <laughs> well, rather <laughs> than play, you know playing to my character's strengths, but i I've, I've definitely uh, been mm-hmm. on both sides of that issue of both the player and the dm where my players have you know discussed and discussed, and it gets to a point where one or two players will be like, "I just don't care anymore like i mm-hmm. we're not playing yeah. the game anymore, we're just in this weird metaverse of. Not really playing and just kind of overthinking everything and that that is why I asked the question because when it gets to that point it, as soon as that the first player is annoyed then everything you know the house of cards falls down very quickly because right it's which is fair enough like the moment one person's not really having fun well then absolutely the house of cards should fall over because you need to rectify that pretty pretty sharpish oh yeah which is ironic considering
2: the source of the problem is things happening not sharpish uh, <laughs> yeah you can see that that one person tilt and then it just kind of sinks the whole ship. Yeah, oh, yeah yeah uh
0: so yeah that's that's why i asked the question to be like let's let's think about that and um it is again i am unbeknownst to me when i asked this question but i'm very happy I've, I've thought of this is that it is again it falls into that that classic dm trap of like oh i shouldn't impose a time limit or i shouldn't just you know Bring in some cheap. While you're deciding, well, the right hand path suffers a landslide, and they can't go down it anymore. Because you know it, it is very easy to be very heavy-handed in those situations as a GM and just have those kind of contrived outcomes. And I think the nuance comes from reducing the options in a way that is fair and makes sense, which is very hard to do, in my opinion. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: If you don't mind another bit of a weird metaphor, I'm bad at writing puzzles. Mm-hmm. I'm fully aware of that. Um, <laughs> so typically I just steal them online. Yes. But if I'm not doing that, if I'm writing my own mystery for the players to solve, um, <laughs> and this is the weird metaphor part. I like to think of it like a meat and charcuterie board. Okay. Right. So I, I worked in a restaurant for years. And I learned a lot about like food presentation and the idea behind flavor profiles, right? Mm -hmm. So the ideal way to build out a a charcuterie board, especially if you're going to be having things like fruit and breads and sauces and honeys and things like that, is to group the things that taste good together, together, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So you're going to put like brie with... Fruit. You're going to put stronger cheeses, like, I don't know why you would have a gorgonzola, but a gorgonzola, (laughs) with, like, salted meats Mm. and more heavy breads, like like a a toasted baguette or something. And the whole idea is that if you're picking from the right side of the board, everything that goes well together is going to be on the right side of the board. Same goes with the left, top, bottom, whatever quadrant that you're in, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So if a player goes to this dinner party and they see this meat and charcuterie board and they're overwhelmed by their amount of options, one of the easiest ways that I've found to lighten the load of that analysis paralysis is to simply go up and say, hey, those grapes go really, really well with Swiss.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Metaphorically speaking.
1: Yeah. Yeah, metaphorically speaking, just go to your players and be like, hey. These two things seem to have some kind of connection. yeah. And eventually you're going to get to a point where something clicks Mm -hmm. and they're able to just steamroll through the rest of the the puzzle, right? Because puzzles are meant to be solved. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, if they're a really suspicious party that never trust anything you say, then you can always be like, hey, you should try blue cheese and honey. Or, or like some weird combination that you know isn't going to taste good because they're going to reject that immediately yeah. and hopefully that'll get the ball rolling. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's a little bit of knowing your party and choosing between truthfulness and deception to kind of spur them into the right direction. I'm a big proponent of, hey GMs, just tell your players what's up. Mm-hmm. Like communicate with them yeah. if you see that they're a little lost. Yeah. Because the game's no fun if it stagnates in my opinion. Yeah. So just, it's not going to hurt anything. Just be like, Hey, go cut the red wire. You know? Yeah. It, I don't think it's really going to hurt anything in the grand scheme.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, and then when do you roll, when do you roll the cheese down the hill? Of I, uh... <laughs> uh, typically after you taste it and don't like it, okay. and you're like, ah, I don't want that anymore. And then the cheese always gets to the bottom. Got it. Right. I'm ready to DM now. Uh... Exactly.
3: The cheese eventually <laughs> reaches the bottom. <laughs>
4: <laughs> all roads lead to the bottom of the hill yeah yeah yeah
3: exactly <laughs> all roads lead to the cheese <laughs> you
1: know, like not all who or cheddar or something, something like along that along
0: those lines yeah <laughs> yeah some some profound metaphor in there that we've built together and some collaborative stories yeah, for sure you could say. um
4: <laughs> I, I do
0: think there is i love i love that you've brought that up there that the dm withholding information and i feel qualified to talk about this because it's something that i've done several times myself for for wrongly in that it is very easy to to fulfill that kind of machiavellian like i hold all the cards and you stupid (laughs) players don't know what you're doing and it it, it kind of ticks that small box of of being a gm so that combined with how intrinsically difficult it is to know what the players know and to, to another level deeper to know what they're characters know and disassociate that from what you as the gm know which is mm-hmm. qu- quite literally everything uh yeah <laughs> uh, so that often leads to those situations where like oh i don't need to tell them to cut the red wire because it's obvious it's the red it's the red wire why wouldn't they be cutting it and then what you don't know as the dm is that they've got 70 sessions of baggage that's taught them don't cut you know red things or or they too many mm-hmm. enemies were red in the last couple of sessions and now they've they they are suspicious about red things and that just didn't click for you until this one pertinent moment when it all rests on cutting the red wire and then you're, you're just sitting there as a gm going ah shit yeah i didn't see that <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: mm-hmm. yep and it's okay to admit that you're wrong at points you know so to beat a dead horse if your rock gets stuck rolling down the hill it's okay to walk down the hill a little bit and be like here you go buddy I'm sorry I didn't see that somebody parked their car there Mm -hmm. you know it's okay to just kind of nudge it a little bit to get the metaphorical rock rolling again you know Yep. I mean don't pick it up and carry it to the bottom of the hill Mm -hmm. but just a, a little nudge here and there to get everything moving again I don't think is a bad thing if you do mess up as a GM just say hey that's on me let's keep going yeah,
0: yeah precisely and and you're now um i was gonna say you must have listened to the show before because most of the show nowadays is me talking about the mistakes i've made uh so <laughs> as, as, as a gm so yes we, we, we we're we're certainly over that bridge so as we you alluded to earlier on kelsey regarding the comic art side of things and motion uh, in, in regards to that please mm-hmm. educate me
3: oh boy okay so motion in comics can apply to a lot of things it can imply it can apply to how does the reader's eye move around the page in order to read it it can also mean can the art imply movement on the page does a character look like they are moving like a fluidly stiffly How are you implying motion in the character that you are illustrating? How are you implying motion in the dialogue? Is there motion in the dialogue? There's a lot of different factors for where motion can apply in comics. Um, The most recent page that I finished for my own webcomic, The Legend of Jamie Roberts, I feel really proud of uh, because it is in my opinion very fluid and a lot of my readers have noticed hey the the motion in this page is actually really really nice because like um in in the particular page there's uh one character Asia tossing something to another character Daniel and Daniel is like fumbling with it and the line work and the gesture can imply the motion as well so there's that and then there's also Just the motion of the story overall. And that can also be really hard to achieve in comics because I'll tell you what, it's really easy for comic stories to get from point A to point B and then they never get to point C because point B for some ungodly reason is where the creative team is like let's just hang out here for a little bit and it's like can we please get to point c though
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> which which is that uh is that pitfall there is directly applicable to what we've just spent the last 15 minutes discussing around <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yes. being, being stuck in that that middle ground of like in inaction in or, or on no velocity for, for whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. A chunk of that can also just apply to it and really depends on the comic market. A lot of it is really dependent on like, Sales, (laughs) sales <laughs> because <laughs> if if the sales of a book are really really good you want to try to prolong the story for as long as mm-hmm. you can so you just keep the characters hanging out at point B and you just don't have them get anywhere near point C because point C is the conclusion we don't want this to conclude we want to keep selling books mm. and that can be kind of a problem <laughs> because you do want to reach a conclusion at some point
0: yeah yeah goddamn capitalism
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh well and one thing you mentioned kelsey is is talking about motion like what where the the reader's eyes are on and i think that that part of that can kind of tie back to you know describing a scene as a as a gm Mm. you're Mm -hmm. painting a picture and then okay what is gonna jump out at your players immediately what are they gonna run over and interact with and did you describe something meaningful or did you just describe a bump on a log that they are now suddenly fascinated with?
3: Yeah. And also be aware of the kinds of like backstory things that your characters have hanging around in their backstory whenever you're, Mm -hmm. so that whenever you're describing a scene and let's Let's say, for example, uh, that you have a player character who is looking for a missing mentor figure and you're describing a scene and you bring up, that there is something in the bushes that looks an awful lot like fabric. That player is suddenly going to be like, "Oh, what's the pattern on the fabric over there? Is it connected to my mentor figure whom I'm I'm looking for? Were they just in this area? Like mm. what does it look like?" And that would make them want to go and investigate. Stuff like that.
0: Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. I I'm glad you mentioned that Joe again because that is a very classic pitfall again for GMs to be like Mm-hmm. Do I point to the elephant in the room or do I not point and let the players then find it? But then, you know, which is the lesser of two evils here because then otherwise are they going to get fixated on that random pebble that I drew attention to for flavor and waste, right. funnily enough, bring the game to a, <laughs> a screeching halt because they're invested in Pebblegate? <laughs> or, <laughs> or or do I just be like, nah, like the pebble's just a pebble, guys? Um. The big flaming demon is maybe a bigger concern.
3: <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is... Uh, I'm sorry. I'm bringing up Critical Role again. This is why in Campaign 2, Matt Mercer really should not have described the chair in as much depth yeah. as he did. <laughs> because there was a scene where... and. What you describe and how you describe it will say a lot. And he had described a scene where everything was wrecked except for one chair, which was still standing on all four legs, undisturbed. And lesson to all GMs and DMs out there, how you describe a scene and how you describe the objects in that scene will do a lot to paint an implication
4: mm-hmm.
3: of that scene and paint an implication of the object that you are describing. Because if everything is a mess, but there is one object that is really pristine, what does that say about the object?
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. well, this is actually a really interesting thing that is in all forms of storytelling, because this is the difference between what the GM knows and what the players know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have to remember as a GM, if you're describing a scene, that how you describe it, or how you show it, whether you have a battle map or like an illustration, Mm -hmm. That's all that the players know about the area that they're in. So if, uh, let's say, in Lord of the Rings, they never mention Mordor, ever. And then suddenly you're in Mordor and you're like, whoa, what the fuck? What is this? (laughs) You know? Like, I don't know what this place is. The viewer of the film, if they have zero context or zero idea what Mordor is, are going to be completely lost, and they're going to latch onto the first thing that interests them.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: In that case, which would probably be the giant volcano or the army of orcs, depending on the person that watches it. But,
3: or the giant-ass eyeball that's staring down at them from on high. That's
1: not important. Or that. <laughs> probably not. Uh, but as a GM, you know, you have all of the power to draw focus to something. And this is where I think pace comes into the conversation of motion. Because if you're moving slowly, you're still moving, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I like to take my descriptive moments, especially in a new area, to slow down the pace of the game and really bring the important things to bear. Um, my players in my DD game just entered a, a ruined city. With, like, a bunch of skeletons everywhere and tree overgrowth and everything like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I go ahead and I describe the city and all that. But what I really wanted to bring their attention to was this giant hundred foot across hole that sunk down deeper than any of them could see right in the middle of the town. Pretty easy thing to bring attention to. But it's also a really easy thing to just kind of gloss over because you just assume that people will pay attention to it, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Mm-hmm. So the way that I got around that was, let me take my time, let me describe everything you know, relatively quickly, just tell them what everything looks like, and then let me slow down how quickly I'm talking when I'm describing this massive hole, these aqueducts going all throughout the city or draining into it, but it is not full of water because the aqueducts aren't full right now this hole sinks down and down and down. You feel the call into the void that is at the bottom of this sinkhole. And that immediately enraptured all of them. And of course, like a good GM, I ended the session there. Perfect. (laughs) Yes. uh, (laughs) Perfect. uh, But slowing down even just the pace at which you speak draws a lot of attention to people. Mm. Uh, Because whether or not we realize it, Mm -hmm. humans like to hyperfixate on on things that are not normal in their mind. And if this is my normal speaking pace, just slowing down or speeding up is going to tell a lot subconsciously
0: to my players.
3: Heck yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I love that example actually, because if that exactly identical situation was delivered by a not so masterful GM, it could have easily been, you know, construed by the players as, oh, that's just a well and like there's, yeah. a, there's a hole in the ground of wars running into that's the well okay what else do we see and then you're like oh, oh no <laughs> yeah no 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 it's a really really important well hold on yeah. don't leave yet yeah no come back come back <laughs> pulling them by the scruff yeah. of their necks so no yeah that's
3: yes like... yeah it's very it's very important to know the kind of mood that you want to set uh mm. slowing down can be a really good way to build a sense of dread Mm -hmm. Uh, so is Mm -hmm. lowering your voice just that little bit or like dropping down to a near whisper so tone of voice can also affect motion Mm -hmm. um it's it's true for comics it's true for gming a session yeah
0: yeah yeah and it's uh it's a classic uh i learned many years ago in my university days when delivering presentations that people tend to speak uh you know their cadence increases when you're standing in front of people slightly nervous you subconsciously rattle you want to rattle through it so it's over quicker and, mm-hmm. uh, and a big skill you learn mm-hmm. when practicing giving presentations and, and whatnot is a you know obviously learn the material so you're a bit more confident but it's it's b it's it's having that conscious effort in your mind to slow down your the way you're speaking to bring you back into your normal kind of speed because when you're rattling through it fast you lose you sound less confident, you lose the nuance, you lose the detail because you're just blasting through and sounds because of this anyway, and this and profitability is that anyway. Uh, bye, thanks for listening. And no one's really <laughs> <laughs> paid attention, so you know, yeah. just from a human being point of view, there, there's, yeah. there's reams and reams of evidence in, in, in how that's important just from standing up in front of you know 30 of your classmates and telling them about this piece of work you've done. So, obviously, you can apply that very same thinking to just being a DM and being like. Okay, I'm not particularly nervous right now, although some will be. But yeah, just slowing it down one more notch can have the, the opposite effect of speeding it up, unsurprisingly.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I did stage acting in high school. And one of the ways that we rehearsed was we would rehearse speaking as fast as we possibly could and going through the motions as fast as we possibly could just to give ourselves uh, kind of a range at which. We could actually operate. So, if it was a one-hour show, then we would try, like, we would set ourselves a goal to get it done in forty minutes. Speed running it exactly. <laughs> we would speed run the show, and when we did that, it gave at least it gave me a more conscious understanding of what pace am I actually performing at. Mm-hmm. And then when we got to the actual show, we would perform it, you know, three times: Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And um, when we would actually get in there and perform the show. I would be able to carry that with me a little bit more. And of course, we'd been rehearsing for months, so the confidence was uh, was available to mm-hmm. us. But still having that idea of, I can finish this show in 40 minutes if I'm not careful. Let me rein it in. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, It can be really, really helpful. So if you're going to practice as a GM, that's something that I would suggest, is try to speed run through all of the uh, descriptions that you're going to use, and that'll give you an idea of, okay, how fast can I actually say this yeah. if I'm not paying attention? Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and conversely, if I may, because um, I have I did improv comedy for a couple of years when I was in college, uh, one of our warm-up exercises was actually slow-motion movement, mm. uh, like going through things like exceptionally slowly, um, whether you're like, Doing slow motion, like fighting and doing exaggerated reactions or doing reactions that are totally unexpected, but like just going through things deliberately slowly, like exceptionally so. Like whatever you think sloth speed is, even slower than that. (laughs) That was our warm up exercise (laughs) for uh, getting ourselves loose and getting ourselves relaxed.
0: Mm-hmm. well uh thank you uh all for for sharing the, your uh, expertise and knowledge in in these areas that on the face of it i wouldn't have immediately applied to uh, D and and rpgs and yet here we are uh <laughs> <laughs> we're good for that <laughs> uh is, is there anything about the topic of motion that you wanted to discuss that we might not have hit yet
2: uh, the only other thing, I you see a lot of people like complaining about like specific races because they have certain types of motion, whether that's like swim speeds or fly speeds. Mm-hmm. I think just to briefly touch on that, I think the big thing with that is just knowing what you're in for. Like is a fly speed uh, a little overpowered? Maybe. But if you're planning for it, it's not going to be that big of a deal. It's, yeah. it's, I think it boils down to knowing your, knowing your party and knowing that team uh, at the end of the day. Yeah absolutely as
3: as much as it because usually i don't pay too too much attention to stat blocks even as a dm and yet paying Uh. attention to stat blocks is important and (laughs) paying attention to your player character's stat blocks are very important like
2: reading is fundamental reading is fundamental
3: (laughs) also it would really really suck to plan an encounter with like for example a displacer beast and suddenly your cleric is like i cast banishment and it's like oh Because the displacer beast is not native to this plane of existence. That that shit's gone. Yep. Okay.
0: (laughs) Yep, that that happened to me. So that's fine. You're not bringing up any bad memories there. Oh no, it totally (laughs) happened to me too.
3: I feel you, dude.
0: Yeah, I had two two big flying guys from one of the layers of the abyss and uh, my sorcerer took a pump and just said, they look alien enough, banishment. And I was like, oh, okay, this is now trivial combat.
3: Yep,
4: and uh, yeah,
0: <laughs> did, did go did try and break the concentration, but wasn't wasn't quick enough, and uh, yeah, that, that was that. So uh, yeah, yeah,
3: know your players' capabilities. Uh,
0: yeah, and and the fly thing, yep. I love as a fear because I have been there as well, and it is a genuine concern. Again, indicative of how the majority of games are played in tier one and two, when it makes the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. Because as soon as my warlock got fly. Like, he was like, I'm not standing on the ground. You guys are chumps walking around. I'm flying. Like, any given opportunity, (laughs) he's like, I'm flying. Fighting enemies. I'm flying. Talking to a merchant. I'm flying. Buying uh, shoes. I'm flying. Which is weird, because shoes are for walking on the (laughs) ground. But he'd still be flying. And so when when that band-aid was torn off, I was like, oh, okay. It was no longer this big, scary thing that I had to worry about.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, once you get to tier three, where, like people can move between dimensions and shit like mm-hmm. it's it's negligible i mean even at tier 2 like yeah. several classes are going to give you like i want to say there, uh, so there are some rangers that give you like swim yeah. speeds or climb speeds and stuff like that yeah. so it's just it's negligible it is yeah
0: yeah well awesome so after after that is there anything that you would like to promote that you haven't already sneakily promoted halfway through the episode
4: you <laughs> could have done this
3: oh gee i do i do, i have no idea what you're talking about we need to point fingers and we need to get to the bottom of who did this It was <laughs> <clears throat> um
1: well yeah uh you know we're the fourth leg as we talked about at the start of the show top of the show we are like i said at the top of the show a, a tabletop gaming show that dives into a comprehensive guide on how to start your career gming and we're currently coming to a rapid close to season two i think we've only got like mm-hmm. two or three more episodes to release so get in on that uh, we are currently building through a uh, well three different campaign settings that are originally created one by each host
3: and in different systems, no less.
1: Ooh, yeah. And in different systems, no less, using D&D 5e, uh, the Genesis system uh, by Fantasy Flight Games, and powered by the Apocalypse system set in a, a cyberpunk wasteland. Uh, so those are coming along really nicely. And we do our best to incorporate the things that we've talked about in prior episodes directly into the next stages of our campaign. So we're coming up on the fourth installment of that. Uh, so stay tuned.
3: Heck yeah.
1: Oh, and you can find us on Spotify and a bunch of other podcatchers and follow our Twitter at the Fourth Leg.
0: Yes, uh, your, your podcast platform of choice, I'm sure. Perhaps the the very one that people are listening to right now, I would imagine. Uh. <laughs> Probably. <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well, uh, in that case, all that's left to say is a very, very heartfelt thanks to the the three of you today, Joe, Kelsey, and Hunter. That was that was a really, 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 really interesting discussion. On something which is on the face of it a bit um, esoteric. Abstract. Yeah, yeah. Ab- abstract and <laughs> esoteric, and uh, just kind of like, how? Don't know. But, but how could this topic ever be applied to TTRPGs? And I'm very happy to have answered that hypothetical question from my invisible hater
1: <laughs> yeah no we talked about rocks and hills and meats and honey it's great yeah, and now yeah. i'm hungry Comics. again
0: despite having just had dinner so cool uh <laughs> <laughs> so no thank you thank you i haven't eaten dinner yet so maybe that's why i started talking about food all these food I mean, metaphors food is,
3: <laughs> food is a great topic regardless but oh. I could also eat all the time. I'm that kind of person.
0: Well, yeah. you, 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 yeah. you're providing additional value because food isn't a topic that we've covered yet. So that's now on the list. So thank you <gasps> very much.
3: <laughs> and we've talked about it a little bit in this episode. You're welcome.
0: We'll see We'll see you all back uh, next season yep. for food. For food, yeah. Season four. <laughs> the, the food leg. I don't know. So, something there. There's, there's a pun somewhere in there buried in there.
3: <laughs> the fourth leg of chicken. Oh, there we go. That's <laughs> fast here. <laughs> all,
0: right.
2: all right. Okay. okay. Leg of lamb. Yeah. Of so, there's
0: something. There's something knocking around there. We'll, we'll we'll workshop it and come back in the next season. Um, but I, yeah. I mean, uh, with these terrible puns, I can't think of a better place to end the episode. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> thank you all uh, for for listening at home. Please do check out the episode description for the links to the fourth leg, as well as all of my socials. And I'd very much encourage you to reach out to any of us to talk about rocks or food um two two primary topics Uh, (laughs) otherwise thank you all for listening and good night good night thank you take it easy guys and now it's time for the patreon shout outs thank you to optional rule a two-time guest of the show and a very insightful and knowledgeable source of information please check them out at www.optionalrule.com Huge, huge, huge thank you to a great friend of the show, Matthew Perkins, who's out there making hilarious and educational Dungeons & Dragons content. Please go and check out his stuff at MatthewPerkins.net, where you can find links to all of his socials and all of his content, including his own Patreon, which I would very much encourage you to check out. Thank you to Matt Street, at MPStreet88 on Twitter, for supporting the show. If you need support running your personal or business schedule... Head to virtualtimehustle.com or on Instagram to make that difference between should do and done. Boss it better with support from Kat, who will help you get back that essential time you've been searching for. If you would like to support what we do and get four shout-outs a month, head over to patreon.com/slash thinkingcritically, or you can just buy me a coffee at kofi.com/slash thinkingcritically.